privilege it is to be with the Lord's people this morning as we worship together and uh, as we come now to our text for today. We've been journeying quite a while through First uh, and Second Thessalonians. When I first thought we would do this, I certainly wouldn't have thought last January we'd still be here uh, in these letters, but you know, a lot's happened since last January, hasn't it? That kind of uh, really changed our plans and schedules a little bit, but uh, thank God it didn't stop the gospel being preached. And so we're still here working our way through the Word of God as we do every Sunday. Uh, as we come to this third and final chapter of this letter and we begin it, it would serve us to remember that these chapter divisions were not in the original letter. Paul didn't write these numbers that we see in our Bibles. Uh, they were put there to help us organize it and find it easier, access it easier. Uh, they certainly help preachers to get everybody on the same page, right? But, uh, but they weren't there in the letter. And so sometimes we can artificially divide what we're reading today from what we read last week. And the flow of Paul's letter, it flowed straight through. And so we need to recognize that. And we need to realize that as Paul is signaling here the end of the letter by getting to this first word finally, we want to recognize that he's writing this last part or last chapter as we have it uh, in light of what he has been saying. And so as you think about what he's been saying, he's been offering thanksgiving to God for these believers, knowing that God has delivered them, sanctified them, and is going to glorify them. And that's God's ultimate aim. It's to glorify His people, to have them with Him forevermore. Justification is that first step as Christ has justified us by His blood. And we are thankful for that. But the end of the race is not justification. We enter the race as believers at our justification. We are then sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And God ultimately will glorify us and we will be forever with Him, which is just the most glorious promise that we are given. And we're thankful for that. So he charges them in light of all that he has been saying, all that he has been instructing them, and all that he has said in praise to God, he he charges them to think about how they're going to live their lives. He prays in this benediction that we looked at last Sunday that God would comfort their hearts and that He would help them as they live out their life to guard their words and their steps, their actions and what they say. And so all of this Paul is saying to say it's very important as Christians how you live. Uh, we are not antinomians, are we? Even though we say we are saved by God's grace, apart from any works that we do, we are called then, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live lives in glory to God. And so that means uh, that we are people who deeply revere the Word of God and desire to live out the Word of God in our lives, which is only possible with God's help, only possible with the empowerment of the Spirit. And so we are thankful uh, to God for that. And so Paul says all this. He says that uh, in light of the grace which God has delivered them through, that they live and stay true to the message of the gospel. He calls them the traditions that were brought to you uh, by us, by the mission team. Uh, they weren't really at that point recorded, right? This was, in fact, uh, 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, likely, of the New Testament. And so these are just traditions. These are teachings brought by these men that God has called as apostles to bring out the message of the gospel to the churches. And so Paul says, hold fast to what we taught you. If some other person comes in with a different message, 
reject it. Don't listen to it unless it's in accord with what we taught you. The same message he tells the Galatians. If anyone comes preaching another gospel other than what we first taught to you, call them accursed, anathema. Reject them. Recognize them as an enemy of the gospel for preaching a gospel other than what we first preached to you. And so Paul is very serious about this. Hold fast, hold true to what we brought to you. And so Paul then uh, basically gives this beautiful benediction we looked at and prayer, right? A benedictory prayer, if you will, for these believers that we I mentioned just a moment ago that he would comfort their hearts. They need comfort. Believers need comfort. And then also uh, that they would be guarded in every good work and deed. Now, it makes sense, doesn't it? These are young believers. It makes sense that the Apostle Paul is going to pray for them. I mean, that just makes sense to us. Paul, this uh, elder statesman already of the Christian church, moving around, preaching the gospel, planting churches. Of course, they're going to want Paul to pray for them. But we want to recognize that what the text is going to tell us today is there's a responsibility for younger Christians to pray for their elder Christians. You know, oftentimes... We covet the prayers of those seasoned saints that we know have been long-term prayer warriors. But Paul's requesting that these baby Christians pray for him and his mission team. Now, there's a lot we can draw from that, and, and we'll try to as we move forward. But instantly, it reminds us we're never beyond the need of prayer in this earthly walk. We all need prayer. If the Apostle Paul needed prayer, I need prayer. You need prayer. And I'm sure Paul would say, if Jesus was praying, if he would take time to go out and pray, then how much more does the Apostle Paul need prayer? And if Jesus and Paul were engaged in prayer, how much more do I need to be engaged in prayer? And so, my friends, we recognize the uh, importance of this. And so, uh, we want to look at the text today. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Now, as we look at these two verses, we'll be relatively quick since we only have two verses this morning, but they are important verses because it really covers what Paul is praying for, or what Paul is requesting prayer for. And the first thing is that Paul requests prayer for gospel speed, gospel speed. And second of all, Paul requests prayer for ministerial deliverance. Ministerial deliverance. So beginning with this gospel request for a request for a gospel speed, uh, we're going to begin where Paul begins. We always try to do this. We start right at the beginning, and Paul begins with finally. And so he's signaling to his listeners or to his, those reading his letter, to us today reading it or listening to it, that he's moving toward the finish line in this letter now. He's covered the important things. He's encouraged them, which he des- desired to do in their trials and tribulations. And he's instructed them in some important matters, uh, eschatological matters that they were greatly confused over. Paul has tried to inform them about some things. And he's let them know that he's praying for them. All these things are important. Paul will have a few more things to say moving forward uh, to the community there at Thessalonica, but he's letting them know that really the main things he's wanting to deal with are now drawing to a close. But 
we come back to this idea because Paul has just prayed for them. And again, it would be very easy for us to imagine uh, that Paul is kind of maybe in a position of not needing the prayers of these junior believers, these infant believers, these newborn Christians, if you will. But Paul certainly didn't see it that way, did he? Paul's very next thing after having this benedictory prayer, or as F.F. Bruce called it, kind of a wish prayer, what he's hoping God will do, and I believe Paul has confidence that God will do it because he knows that these are God's people and God desires to work in His people in the very way that Paul is praying for. But now Paul immediately follows that by saying, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Remember me in your prayers. Remember Silas in your prayers. Remember the mission team in your prayers. I think Paul really has a a prayer request beyond that. Pray for the apostolic team, the team he's a part of, but also all those working to promote the gospel. Just as you've shown concern for your fellow churches in the region, show concern for those who are carrying the gospel to new places. Pray for those who have the gospel in relatively new places or encountering persecution. Pray for us. Pray for us. We see here again the need that Paul recognizes that he has for prayer. You know, you may remember just a couple of weeks ago, maybe actually three or four weeks ago now, but we had a sermon at the end of chapter 2 called Thanksgiving and Confidence. And we made the argument that Paul's confidence was not in the Thessalonians. Paul didn't look at the Thessalonians and say, you're going to make it in your own empowerment because you're a really incredible people. Paul didn't believe that. Paul thought they would make it because God had given them the Holy Spirit. God was at work in them and on them and through them. And therefore, Paul has confidence not so much in them, but in the God who's working through them. So Paul says, I have a confidence these things will happen because I know God. I know the one who is working through you. And I think in the same way, Paul recognizes his own need for prayer because he sees, them in a very, he sees himself in a very similar way to them. Paul knows there's nothing special about him. I mean, Paul was probably a brilliant man, well-educated man in Jewish theology. We know these sorts of things. But Paul knew without God's grace, he was on the wrong track. Paul can look back at his former life and he can say, I was the chief of sinners. God, by His grace, saved me. As an example, I think Paul saw it, that he can save anyone. If he could save the chief of sinners, he can save you. Paul says, I was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of the church, a blasphemer, he says in that very section. I was a blasphemer, and yet God in His grace and mercy delivered me. So Paul recognizes his need of grace. He recognizes his need of the grace and power of God, especially as he's got this tremendous burden on him. In a moment, we'll read a section of 2 Corinthians that we've read a number of times, but it's an important section. And Paul, in that, asks this question, Who is sufficient for such a task? I think we get that Paul's saying he's not. But I don't think Paul's saying, I wish I could be like Peter, he's sufficient. No. He recognizes no human being is sufficient to minister except by God's empowerment. That's the only way. If we stand on our own, 
We are powerless. It's only by the grace and empowerment of God that the gospel can be taken out, can have power, that dead sinners can hear it and recognize it. And so, my friends, Paul is saying, I need your prayers as I go about my mission to carry the gospel out into the world. I need your prayers. But what's interesting about it is Paul even more specifies the prayer, doesn't he? Look at what he says there in verse 1. Pray for us. Pray for us. But then he makes it even more specific. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly. That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? Isn't it? The, the idea of the gospel taking flight and running. It might almost in your mind, it does in mind, give you the idea of, a, of a, an Olympian, right? Running his race. It's interesting that Paul used that language for his own ministry, didn't he? That he had a race to run. That he had run his course well. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uses the same kind of terminology of not getting weary, but running with endurance. Again, there's an image given often. Paul gives it in 1 Corinthians. You've seen the athletes down at the track and how they train. They're temperate. They, they don't indulge their every desire. They are focused on the mission. The mission is to win a crown, to win Olympic glory, to win glory for their city. Paul says, you're not running for some little city that's here today and gone tomorrow. You're running for the king of kings. If they train, how much harder should you be training? My friends, we need to ask ourselves that question from time to time. It's a bit of a gut check, isn't it? And I realize I need to double my efforts often as I think about these things. But Paul is saying here, it's not the image so much of him running, but of the gospel itself running. The gospel taking flight. Now, uh, if you have a Bible, you might flip back really quick to Psalm 147. Paul is borrowing this language, or at least quoting this language. If you look at, uh, starting at verse 15, the whole psalm is worth reading, obviously, uh, but I'm just wanting to get here to the part that Paul is really focusing on. Starting in verse 15, He, meaning God, sends out His command to the earth. So the idea of the oracle of God, the message of God, coming to the earth. Now follow what he says here. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. The idea here is the message that the people of God bring, the prophets of God bring, the messengers of God bring, is not their own. God is the one who sends His message to the earth. And who can stop it? It's like the driven snow or a hailstorm. Who can stop it? Doesn't mean people don't try to stop it. Doesn't mean people don't stand in opposition to it. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to pray in mind of that psalm, that God's word would flow like a, such a powerfully driven blizzard that the opposition of humans couldn't stop it. You can almost get the image, probably in today's imagery, because I don't know if they had snow shovels back then, but of some people trying to shovel off a driveway in the middle of a blizzard. It's futile. They get overwhelmed. 
I think Paul is saying pray that as we bring the gospel message out, it will overwhelm any opposition and it'll fly. It'll just move quickly from church to church, neighborhood to neighborhood, town to town, city to city, and of course region to region. I think that's Paul's desire. Paul is seeking that the gospel will just fly out. But Paul recognizes for that to happen, the second part of this prayer request must, must happen. And that's that the gospel would be glorified. Now that's an interesting way of wording it, isn't it? Some translations say honored, that the gospel would be honored. The word of God should be given honor. That's what Paul is saying. The word of uh, God should be given a, a deference, a, should recognize the glory that it is as the revealed truth, the word of Almighty God. The reason we hold the Bible in such esteem is because it is the Word of God, the very Word of God. It overrules any thoughts of man, doesn't need the correction of man. The thoughts of man stand ridiculously in the shadow of the Word of God. Paul says, pray that as it goes out, people will recognize that. That these are the very words of Almighty God. Acts chapter 13 if you want to turn there, or you could just listen either way. It says, Now, when the Gentiles, this is verse 48, the gospel has been preached. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. They recognized it as glorious. They are honoring it, they are recognizing its importance. They are giving it the glory it is due as the very word of God. Paul says, you already know this. You're an example of what I'm talking about. Just see what he says there. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul could actually say in Thessalonica are the examples of what we want to see and what we don't want to see combined, as it would be anywhere. He said when the word of God came, there were some who rejected it, had no interest in it, hated it opposed it, warred against it. But Paul says, if you want to see what I have in mind, look to yourselves. Look to the the Thessalonian church who heard the Word of God, recognized it as the Word of God, loved it, accepted it, followed it, glorified it, honored it. That's an amazing word, but what does it mean to say you show honor or glory to the Word of God? It means, first of all, you recognize it as the Word of God. Second of all, you accept it as the Word of God. And third, you put it into practice. And we're not saved by putting it into practice, but God says of His people that they should put it into practice. Saved by His grace, we should be a people who live by His commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The truth is truth. The people of God are to be the people of truth, the people of the book. The only way we can do that is to live it out, to be transformed by the Spirit of God and the power of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We are being transformed, transformed into a people empowered by God to live out His commands. And so, my friends, again, how do we show honor to the Word of God? We show that it is honorable by obeying it, by trusting in it, by by living by it. So that's how we practically do what Paul is asking here. But Paul is asking that they pray that 
as the gospel goes out, others would receive it in that way. Recognize it as the truth. My friends, there's a spiritual battle going on every time the Word of God is preached. And the Bible tells us the Word of God does not fall weak. It does not return devoid of God's intentions for it. Every time it goes out, it does something. Those who reject it are hardened by it as they go, oh, it's nonsense. Nonsense. Ridiculous. Foolishness, as Paul says, it is to the Greeks. They're hardened by it. But my friends, to those who recognize the Word of God, it softens their heart, breaks their heart. And so Paul says, pray that as we go out and preach the Word, people would hear the Word, recognize the Word, be changed by the very Word of God. The Spirit of God working through the mighty Word of God. Paul says, you've seen it. When I came to Thessalonica, the Word was preached with power. Do you remember that in 1 Thessalonians? With power. What does he mean? Things happened. Things happened. You saw it. People being changed and transformed and believing. You've seen what I'm talking about. Pray that as we go to other cities, the same sort of thing happens. My friends, that's Paul's desire. Now, we have a second prayer request, and this is our second point for ministerial deliverance. If you look at verse 2, you'll see it. So he's prayed that the Word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. We may be delivered. It's a prayer for ministerial deliverance. I don't think Paul is saying, I want to be delivered so I can live an easy life. Paul's saying, I want to be delivered that the gospel can continue to be preached. I don't think that when Paul was in prison, I mean, he knew that God had a reason for him being in prison. He was parked there in Caesarea, for instance, for a couple of years. Paul, I'm sure, was thinking, man, I'd like to be out preaching the gospel. When he's in Rome, imprisoned under house arrest. Yet Paul found a way constantly to continue preaching the Word of God. If he was in a jail cell, he began to write letters to churches. If he was in a jail cell, he would preach to Festus or whoever he could have access to. In Rome, people would come to him under house arrest, and Paul would preach the gospel. But my friends, I think in those moments where Paul felt that sting of persecution, his only hope was that the gospel wouldn't somehow be hindered. He says, I'm in chains, but praise God, the word of God, the gospel of God is not in chains. It continues to sound forth. So my friends, Paul wants to be delivered for the purposes of the gospel. It's a gospel prayer. He wants to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Now maybe your translation's a little different on that. That's New King James. The term for unreasonable is sometimes translated wrong-headed, perverse. Uh, it's got that idea of just being in the wrong direction. I think the idea Paul has here is the truth is being told to them, they reject truth. You know, one of the reasons you can see God's judgment on our nation today is we're a nation that rejects truth today. I mean, we can't even figure out how many genders there are anymore. Basic science, 30 years ago. We can't figure any of it out. We need wisdom. But beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and we've lost the fear of the Lord. And so we all run to our own truth. Each one does what's right in his own sight. My friends, Paul is looking at a 
group of men, a generation if you will, in his own day, who were in this way wrong-headed, rejecting obvious truth, at war with the truth, at war with God. Leon Morris states that when this term is used in terms of ethics, it's right to translate it as perverse. Because that's the effect you're going to have on your morals. They're going to be perverted from the true way they should be. And so again, uh, Paul is saying that this is a serious thing. These are uh, perverse or wrong-headed people. Unreasonable people. There's no reason within them. Reason would lead you to accept truth. Not to reject it. Not to reject it. Now we doubt in our modern generation if there even is such a thing as reason. Because reason necessarily leads us to truth. And if there is no truth, there can't be reason. So my friends, we have fallen far. We need to recognize that. The second term Paul uses in the New King James is translated wicked, and it literally means evil or wicked. Evil or wicked people. So Paul is saying that they are being opposed by the enemies of the gospel. Those who hate the truth, who hate God, enemies of God. Now you can refer back to many places where Paul speaks about this. This is not a new idea in Paul's writings. It's something that is just not preached much today. But Paul makes it clear there are dividing lines on the gospel. Jesus said the same thing. But Paul makes it very clear over and over in his writings. Go back to Romans 1. Who are the enemies of the gospel? Those that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Though they knew God, they would not glorify Him as God. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, I think it's got a really important section here. This is the one I was referring to earlier when Paul asked who is sufficient. Listen to the terms that Paul uses for the battle in which he is engaged. This is uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas as to preach the, uh, Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them... I departed for Macedonia. Now listen to this. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Now you hear that? The knowledge of God goes out to everywhere. But how do people respond to that knowledge? For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. Paul's talking about the enemies of the gospel. The smell of the gospel to them is as of death. They want no part of it. They want no part of it. And that leads them to their own death. That's pretty stark terms from Paul, isn't it? But look at the contrast. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Now, my friends, those are stark terms given. Uh, Oftentimes, Christians wonder, why is the gospel so hated? Well, Paul wrote about it over and over. He gave you the answer. There are people that hate God, hate His glory. It's our natural state as fallen sinners. If you want to go back to the first chapter of this letter, maybe you remember uh, when we were first meeting again, we covered what Paul says in the first chapter about an evident token of the righteous judgment of God as he puts a dividing line down between those who are writing and warring against the church at Thessalonica. Paul says, in this there's an evident token of God's righteous judgment, that you're his people. 
and that the enemies of God recognize it and war against you. Where you see the church under attack, Paul says, don't think that's an accident. Paul will very shortly, we'll look at this next week, uh, talk about guarding you from the evil one. Well, same sort of thing here, isn't it? The attack of Satan, the attack of the enemy against uh, the, the church of Christ. Paul says manifest itself in people uh, who are his children. Those who serve him, who serve the flesh. So Paul says again, my friends, there is a battle going on, a true war going on as the gospel is preached. And Paul saw those results firsthand. Saw them firsthand. My friends, we have brothers and sisters around the world that see it firsthand every day. They go out and preach the gospel and somebody hears it for the first time and weeps recognizing the truth that they've been told. And somebody else says, somebody should shut this guy up. Somebody should shut him up. My friends, we're increasingly seeing that in our own nation. A desire to get the churches to just shut up. Quit talking. No one wants to hear you. We've got our own ideas. We don't want to hear yours. Paul says all that is is a dividing line that's being made evident, the evident token of the righteous judgment of God. Paul says pray for us because we're in this battle and people are being saved to the glory of God. Somebody's got to go out in the midst of all that difficulty and continue preaching the word of God. Paul says we're doing it. We need your prayers. We need your prayers. And we're praying that you'll stand firm and bold in the decisive hour. So Paul says that there is a need for prayer. Us praying for you, you praying for us. And guess what? We have the same needs, don't we? To pray for each other in our walks. It's not easy. It's not easy. And it's getting more difficult. But you know what? We have Almighty God on our side. Think about the psalm we read this morning about the end of the wicked, those in opposition. It says, don't uh, fret now in the present moment. Translating it a little bit in my own language here. Don't fret in the present moment. The end of the wicked is certain. They're here today, gone tomorrow, as all people are from this earth. But my friends, what's important, Paul says, and that the psalmist is saying, David is saying, is where you put your hope and faith. My friends, one of the things that I think maybe we fail to think about or pray about is this very thing. Uh, Even though Paul's talking to the Thessalonians in his day, he would tell us, are you praying regularly that the Word of God would fly with speed into new places? Are you praying for the safety of the ministers of the gospel as they go out, the evangelists, the missionaries, as they go out and proclaim the Word of God in new places? Do you pray that they would be safe, that they would have deliverance in their trials and tribulations, that the Word of God may continue to be preached? And do you pray as people hear it that they recognize it and they give it honor and glory? They recognize they're hearing the very words of God. Paul says, we've brought you the very word of God. Pray that as it goes out, others will recognize it. will hear it and say, that's the truth. And give it honor and glory, not just lip service, not draw to it near to it with their lips and keep their heart far away as the prophets and Jesus warned us. But they would hear it, 
recognize it, love it, and devote themselves to it. That's what Paul did. That's what the Thessalonians did. I pray that's what we're doing.